Father, we do pray that you would reign, that you would reign not just in a cosmic, eternal way, but that you would reign in our hearts today. And Lord, that would be demonstrated by the fact that we love you, and we love you in such a way that we would sing your word, and we would listen to your word attentively with a desire to obey it. So I pray that we would have that grace from you, the desire to obey, the desire to listen to your word. We pray, Lord, especially for those who don't know you, call them to salvation today. Grant them faith and repentance. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm so blessed to be with you, and I hope you've had a good start to the holiday season. At good times with friends and family. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. There we are studying the identity of true believers. I realize we've already started singing these seasonal carols. Uh, next week we are going to start a little miniature series. Pastor Steve's actually going to preach, uh, Lord willing, out of John chapter 1. And then uh, I'll pick up after that. But we want to touch on our passage one more time. We've made it to verse 9 which may be the most well-known verse in the book, if not just the chapter, chapter 2. In the ancient world, the area that we know as Israel today, there were seven nations. Moses reported to us there are seven nations. Each of these nations, according to Moses, were bigger and more powerful than the Israelites. Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and the Jebusites. And God actually had mercy on these people for many, many years, at least 400 years. In fact, that's what Moses tells us, that God had mercy on these people for at least 400 years while the people of Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And we know that he didn't simply have mercy on them in terms of not punishing them or destroying them. He had mercy on them and that there was at least some remnant, some level of witness there. We know Abraham, of course, was there. We also know that there was a prophet there, perhaps the most, the least known, but greatest of all prophets in the Old Testament. Melchizedek was there in Canaan land as well, bearing witness to the one true God. Well, these many years passed, these 400 plus years, and these people that lived in that area of the world persisted in their hatred of all things that were good and true. Slaughter their children to appease false gods. They manufactured new gods. They were involved in all sorts of incest and a multitude of other sexual sins. They were profoundly selfish and greedy. They were demonic. They were petulant and warmongering. In fact, if you look at the history of them, they constantly fought one another to gain control of the region. And though God had mercy on them, they did not respond to general nor special revelation. They did nothing but reject God. Well, when God rescued the people out of Egypt and sent them back to that area, their promised land, He told them, what I want you to do, it's a part of my action now, is to destroy these people. Judgment day has come. Their time is up, and I will suffer them no longer. So I want you to go and destroy them. So not only I want you to go and inherit that land, I want you to separate yourself from these people. 
I don't want any leakage. I don't want any spillage of their sin into your heart or your activity. I don't want any of their gods named among you. I don't want any of their corruption to be among you. You are my people, and you are to be separate, and therefore you are to destroy them entirely. I don't want you to be engaged with them or tempted by them. I want you to destroy them. Judgment has come to them. Let me read to you a little part of this testimony. It's in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. God said to his people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because, of, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays their, to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack, but the one who hates him, he will repay him to his face. So God wanted them to be reminded that they, the people of Israel, were his people. They were to be holy to him. He wanted them to know that he had chosen them. And he had chosen them not because they were great or mighty or powerful or many in number, but because of his own grace and his desire to fulfill his promises. You're my people. I chose you out of my grace because of my mightiness. I am a God of grace and love. And I want to prove this on earth and on earth in a people with whom I'll keep my promises. I was reading a little bit of church history this week. And I learned something about Blaise Pascal. You guys know who Blaise Pascal is. The most important fact you need to know about Blaise Pascal is his birthday is June 19th, the same as my wife. <laughs> There's more. They share that birthday with Charles Spurgeon and John MacArthur. Now, don't get too impressed. I was born on February 16th. The same as Kim Jong-il. <laughs> Blaise Pascal, when he was a young man, he was saved. This is a mathematician, a philosopher, a theologian, probably France's greatest theologian. And Blaise Pascal wrote on a scrap of paper to remind himself whose he was. He kept that scrap of paper I was reading this article. He kept that scrap of paper in his breast pocket of his jacket until the day he died. And it was something similar to what I just read out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. He wrote down a little part of it. It's a whole paragraph, a little part of it. Certitude, feelings of joy and peace. So like the people of Israel, he felt owned of God. He was God's person. He was God's child. And it was said that when he was facing doubts in his faith or when he was facing temptation he would reach up and just touch that paper, knowing what was on that paper, to remind himself whose he was. This is very similar to what Moses was doing for the people of Israel. He wanted to put down in black and white whose they were, to remind them of their identity. Well, this is exactly what Peter is doing in these verses. He's been giving these people their identity, these elect exiles, 
They are living stones. We learned up in verse 4 down to uh, verse 8. We studied that last time. And then he begins to explain whose they are. That's verses 9 and 10, these very famous verses. He explained to them what it means to be God's chosen people. Let me read to you these two verses. Again, very familiar verses. And we'll jump in right away and study these verses. Peter says in 8, just above that, you remember, he says, these people, they were given what they really wanted. They wanted to disobey God. They disobeyed the word as they were destined to be. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I look at these verses, Peter begins with these two words, you are, and then he simply gives us a list. What is that list? I'll give it to you briefly, and then we'll go through it. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, people with a purpose. He gives some of that purpose there at the end of verse 9. Verse 10, he continues the list. You you were not a people, but now you're God's people. And finally, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By my count, that gives us seven definition, seven definitions of what it means to be God's chosen people. And I want us to just walk through these seven definitions together and describe them, each one of them briefly. Are you ready? Okay, let's write down the first one. Number one, you are a chosen race. A chosen race. Now, this term chosen race, of course, is laden with theological implications. It's a deep thing in the Bible, this idea of being a chosen race. One of the reasons why I wanted to start with some passages from Deuteronomy is for you to see the depth of this idea, chosen race. Now, this goes all the way back, not just to Deuteronomy, but all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, doesn't it? God chose this pagan guy by the name of Abram. Later, he would be called Abraham, this pagan man who was living his pagan life in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. And he was chosen by God to come out and to be his man and for his offspring to be his people. He told, God told Abram this, your offspring would be my chosen people. I will make you a great nation. Your offspring will inherit this land as they came into that area. In chapter 15, God said, look at the stars. So shall your offspring be, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. This language of God's chosen race begins all the way back in Genesis. God revealed he had had a chosen race. Deuteronomy 10, 15 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it, yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day. You get the picture. God is this transcendent, magnificent God who is God over all, heavens and earth. And yet he has set his love on you. You are his chosen people. In Isaiah chapter 43, God says to the people 
of Israel that basically he's arranged the world so that he can sustain his people and love on his chosen people. If you think about it, the old, whole Old Testament is really a story of God's dealings with his chosen people. How is God going to deal with his chosen people? Now, lest you be confused, it's not that God wouldn't or couldn't save people outside of the Hebrews. Read the book of Ruth, for instance. Read about Rahab in the book of Joshua. There are other people who are not Jewish, and there, in fact, was a, a way that you could become a proselyte. You could actually become a Yahweh worshiper by joining the people of Israel. God made a way. There was evangelism in the Old Testament. So there was a way, and they would join the chosen people of God. Now, the Old Testament is this story of the chosen people of God, fundamentally Israelites, and how they were blessed by God and given mercy by God and given the, the oracles of God and the promises of God and how they responded, how God would bless the world through them. They are God's people. They are God's elect. And that's the actual word that Peter is using here in our verse, the elect of God, chosen of God. There are the elect of God and there's everyone else. God repeated this theme over and over to the people. He needed them to hear this. He needed them to take this to heart. And he said it over and over. I read it earlier. I didn't elect you because you were great, because you were mighty, because you did some great thing, and I decided to choose you. No, I didn't elect you because you were great and kind and loving. I chose you because I am great and kind and loving. The only way God's grace and mercy and love can possibly be displayed is with unconditional election. The whole point is moot if God's election is based on performance or something you did. The whole point of bringing this issue up of God's election is to humble us and to tell us of God's grace and His kindness and His mercy on a people who are no better than anybody else. So throughout the Old Testament, there is this general idea of Jew and Gentiles, the nation of Israel, these two races, essentially, those chosen of God, those not chosen of God. But it goes even deeper. Even in the Old Testament, it goes deeper. And you get this idea that the chosen are the people who are the true followers of God. That's why Paul would say later on, there are such a thing as true Jews. There is a race of God's ultimately chosen people. And it's not just a race thing. It is something that God does person by person. We find this out, again, even in the Old Testament. We have people who are chosen and who are not chosen who are of the same family. We have a whole race of people, many of whom would be condemned and damned by God Himself. We also have many people who were not Jewish people who came into the covenant promises, hoping in the coming Messiah as the true people of God were. Peter says, you are God's chosen people, meaning... By God's grace, none of yours, none of your greatness, none of what you've accomplished, God has elected you. He has chosen you. Give Him all the glory and be humbled. And remind yourself over and over, just as God did the Israelites, remind yourself over and over, it is not because of some accomplishment. You miss the whole point of this doctrine if you take pride, if you somehow become arrogant in the doctrine of election. No, it is to humble us and to bring us to our knees and to worship God. You are His chosen race. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. Again, this theme is laden with meaning. 
I refer you to the message last week about the priests of old, all the different things they did. They offered their lives in a libation. They spoke to God. They trusted in sacrifice. They spoke for God to the people. And what Peter is saying is, when the new covenant came, you all became in this line of royal priests. Kind of a, an interesting thing, a new thought, right? Priests in the Old Testament were not royal. Priests were just priests. It was David's line that were royal. And only when Christ come did these, these terms, prophet, priest, and king, did they all marry into one person. Here is Peter applying this to us. We are priests now. And we're not just any kind of priests. We are royal priests. We are priests and we are also God's children. We are royalty in terms of the spiritual world. Now this idea of all Christians being priests, this, uh, this was a big deal in the day of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the common people under no circumstance could approach God. The Catholic Church taught that the common people under no circumstance can on their own understand Scripture. In fact, they kept the Bible in Jerome's Latin and would keep it away from the people. Some of you who are in our Men of the Word study a couple semesters ago, we studied the Reformation and we learned about the fact that many Bibles were only kept in sacred libraries, oftentimes being chained to a desk so that some careless uh, commoner could not walk out with a Bible and start interpreting it for themselves. No, you needed the church and the priests to come along and tell you what's in there. That's what the church taught. What was most troubling for the Reformers is that the Roman Catholic Church taught that the common people on their own could not receive the grace of salvation simply by trusting and believing in Christ. What the people needed is the church, the priests. These are the ones who are authorized, they said, to dispense and disperse God's grace through sacrament and other rituals. The priests alone could funnel the grace of God to the commoner. And they did so through all these sacred rituals. The reformers came along and read verses like the one that we're studying today and said, no way, we're all priests. We don't need intermediaries. Jesus alone is our mediator. All a person needs to do is to believe in Christ and follow him. Christ alone is head of the church. Christ alone, not some sort of grace mediated by priests. On top of this, the Reformer said God has given all Christians the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so any believer can open up the Bible and read it and understand. You remember what happened when, when Martin Luther was escaping and, and running away after the Diet of Worms. He, he, he went up into a, a castle and he translated the Bible. Why? He translated so the people could pick it up and they could read it. So the commoner could open up the Bible and read it and know God, the God of Scripture. Luther said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed of a, above a pope or cardinal without it. They believed in the priesthood of the believer. We have direct access to God. We don't need a priest. We don't need some sort of fabricated ritual. We need Christ alone. And we can simply have faith 
in Jesus Christ and be saved. I, I, I feel like there's some people in this room, you just simply need to hear that very simple message. You just need to have faith in Christ and believe in Him, and you'll be saved. Believe in Him. Uh, before I move on from this idea of priesthood, I want to uh, address my, my small group. We are going through the life and legacy of J. Gresham Machen. He was a fellow who stood up for biblical truth at the turn of the last century in the Presbyterian Church and uh, was punished for it and eventually had to start his own uh, Presbyterian denomination and school. It ended up being Westminster Theological Seminary there in Philadelphia. And uh, one of the things that the liberals, and he, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, and his, his fundamental thesis was there is no such thing as, as Christian liberalism. If you liberalize Christianity, it is no longer Christianity. It becomes some, something different altogether. Even if you're using Christian terms and Christian thoughts, it becomes something different altogether. Well, as the battle lines between the Christians and the liberals who consider themselves Christian were laid out, one of the accusations from the liberals uh, was that you guys, you conservatives, you Christians, deny the priesthood of believers. And the argument went something like this. If every Christian is a priest, every Christian has the spirit, and every Christian can come up with his own interpretation of the Bible. If, for instance, a Christian says, I believe the virgin birth simply means that Mary was a young and innocent child, not that it was a miracle that took place, we should allow a Christian to believe that because they are a priest and they're allowed to believe this. Or perhaps if they say, I believe Jesus was raised, but not in a physical resurrection, just simply raised up in the memory and the hearts of his followers. Liberals said we must receive these views and respect these views because of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Now, there are several things wrong with this thinking. One is you can't use one doctrine to cudgel as a cudgel to destroy all other doctrines. It's essentially what they're doing. They're using the doctrine of priesthood to destroy the idea of the virgin birth or the resurrection or whatever else doctrine that was fully established in the early church and carried down through the centuries. You can't do, use doctrine like that. The Bible is clear. It is absolute about a number of fundamental doctrines, doctrines that we are required to believe in order to be saved. And you can't use one idea to destroy all these doctrines that are presented to, to us in Scripture. Not only this, it's an absurd position to say that the only absolute in all of Scripture is that we're priests and we can destroy as priests all the other absolutes. That's, this is what became known as postmodernism, right? The only absolute is there is no truth. There are no absolute truths. And so they, they would lead to this. The second problem with this false use of the doctrine of priesthood is that the Bible clearly teaches that any Christian can open and God speak to them, but the Bible also teaches in that same book that we are to look to our leaders. We are to look to older Christians. We are to look to, to church history. Look to those, Hebrews says in 13, those who've gone before us. Study their lives. Study what they've said. Learn the truth in that way. Use even Scripture with itself. Help use Scripture to interpret Scripture. You don't just lift a verse out. You interpret in the context of all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture. Paul said in Ephesians 4, what, what, similar to what the Hebrews 
Now, the writer of Hebrews says we are to look to these leaders as gifts of God to the church to help us mature and grow. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. One more reason why we can't use the, the, the doctrine of priesthood to destroy, or as the liberalists did, to destroy orthodoxy. If priesthood is understood in that liberal way, what the church becomes is a place of zero doctrine. It becomes a place where all aberrant ideals are tolerated and promoted. So the church is no longer what Paul called in Timothy the pillar of truth. Rather, it becomes a place of humanistic or worse ideas proffered with a whole bunch of sentimentality. I told you guys about a year ago when I was, I'd, come, I'd been in Boston for a little while, and I came back and had visited all these churches, and famous churches in Boston, and almost every one of them on a Sunday morning were empty, but they had the gay pride flag waving out front. So you have these places that should be a place of truth, but they took this idea of priesthood and they turned it into the right to defy all the things that the Scripture says. Now, that's not a proper use, and it eventually will destroy the church. No, priesthood does not mean we're free to make up our own reality, to defy, to defy the laws of language and hermeneutics, to manufacture our own truth apart from church history or from anyone else or from what is plainly stated in Scripture. No, it means we have a direct relationship with God, and that even a child can open up the Bible and learn from truth. It doesn't mean that there's no use for preachers or teachers or those who've gone before us. No, we can do that. But as priests, we can read the Bible, we can understand it, we can offer our lives as living sacrifices, we can pour ourselves out before Him as a libation. We don't need a priest or Mary or any other saint to do those things. We're a royal priesthood. Number three. Holy nation. I won't repeat everything I said there, but if you need to go back to when we were in the middle part of chapter 1, we are called to be holy. People of God, even from the Old Testament days, are to look different, dress different, live different. And it wasn't a matter of checking boxes. Remember this, that's legalism, just walking through these things. And the problem with legalism is... Not that people can't live up to it, it's that they can live up to it. And they pat themselves on the back. No, that is not what it means to be holy. To be holy is to live a Godward life. And those things don't become a list of things of do's and don'ts. Those things become a way that you can honor and worship and love and be like your Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a Godward life. It is godliness. God wanted the people of Israel to be holy to Him. It didn't fundamentally mean do this list of rules. What it fundamentally meant was I want you to be like me and represent me on earth. Live in such a way that is a testimony to me. So your marriages, your family, your children, even the way you worship should be different. One of the main ways I discovered as a senior in high school that God was doing a work on my heart is that I would sit at the lunch table with my friends that had been my friends for many years, and I began to realize I didn't like the way that they talked, their language, their subject matter, their attitudes. And by the end of my senior year, I had to part ways and sit with the nerds of the school because <laughs> I didn't want to hear a bunch of garbage. It wasn't because I wanted to check boxes of do's and don'ts. It's because I wanted to be like my Savior, Jesus. 
I wanted to be holy. Not because I felt I was better than anybody else, but because I loved God. Can you imagine a nation of people who has that desire to be like Jesus? Well, that nation already exists. It's the people of God, all the people of God across the earth, that kingdom of Christ all over the world that exists. There are people who want to be holy to God. That is what it is to be a holy nation. And if you're a believer, you're a citizen of that holy nation. Number four, people of his possession. This is the language of redemption. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. He owns us. The price of redemption was the blood of his son, the ransom that was paid was Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Remember that song that we've sung here before, His Forever, that last line, not death nor life nor anything can ever separate me. O love that will not let me go, yes, I am His forever. We are a people of His own possession. Now, Peter in, in interjects here in this list, reminds us of why we were made His. It is to glorify God through the ages, to declare His greatness. Look there at verse 9 again, the whole thing. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Number five, proclaimers of God's glory. Proclaimers of God's glory. I was encouraged the other day. Uh, I was talking to Greg Waybright. Some of you remember Pastor Greg. He's retired now. He lives near family in Colorado Springs. But for a number of years, he came here. He ministered to us a few times. And uh, he pastored in Pasadena at Lake Avenue Church. Uh, I was on a flight coming here, coming home. And uh, in front of me, on the little jump seat, as we came in for the landing, the, the flight attendant sat down. And I began to talk to her. I just sort of broke the ice and told her, yeah, it's probably kind of awkward to have to sit knee to knee with passengers, isn't it? I just wanted to break the ice. It was so weird because we were so close to each other. She said, yes, it is kind of strange. And, and we began to talk. And I found out that she was sort of searching for spiritual truth. And I, I had the privilege and pleasure to explain to her the message of the gospel. I asked her where she lived, and she said, I live in Pasadena. And I said, well, you need to go to my friend's church, Greg Waybright. And uh, I asked Greg a few months ago when he was here, I said, did that girl I named her, did she ever join? Or he said, as a matter of fact, not only did she join, he said, at my retirement ceremony, she came up to me and thanked me for these 10 years or 12 years or whatever it was of ministry here. We have a unique privilege to take the light of Christ to the nations. We who were not a people, we who were no different than anybody else in the world, we have this beautiful privilege of taking the message of Christ to others. I read a story this week. It was entitled, The Tale of Two Martins. 
It was about Martin Luther, Martin Luther and Martin of Basel, B-A-S-L-E. Both of these fellows were saved in that Reformation period. Both of them were in Germany. Truth of Christ sweeping across Germany. Luther, as you know, would eventually stand before the emperor and say, here I stand, I can do no other. Martin Basel wrote down on a paper, a little scrap of paper, almost merciful Christ, I know that I can be saved only by the merit of thy blood. Holy Jesus, I acknowledge thy sufferings for me. I love thee, I love thee, I love thee. And then, fearful of the Catholic persecutors, he dislodged a stone and a stone wall and stuffed that little piece of paper and then put the stone back over it. No one discovered that paper or even the story of this man's salvation for at least a hundred years. And probably for most of us, this is the first time we've ever even heard of Martin Basil. Who do we hear about? We hear about the Christian who did what God told us to do and proclaimed his glory and stood, even though he faced death, he stood before an emperor and said, here I stand. We have this beautiful privilege, this unique privilege of telling people of the light of God, of the excellencies of him who has brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. As God's chosen people, this is our joy. Number six, we are God's people. We are God's people. Now, I know this is similar to God's chosen or chosen people, but this term, God's people, also has a wonderful, rich history, beginning, of course, with the people of Israel. One of the things that most theologians agree about is that God has a special place for the people of Israel. Now, whether that means God is indiscriminately saving Israelites, Jewish people right now, and joining them to His kingdom as they come into the family of God, or whether that means there's going to be an influx, a lot of people believe there's going to be an influx of Jewish people at the end of time. How many of these people? Is it many people? Is it a lot of people? Is it all of them? Is it 144,000? Well, we'll let the end times enthusiasts squabble about that. But in Romans chapter 11, in a very simple way, it's laid out for us that there is this vine of God, this tree of God, and the people of God, the original people of God, the Israelites, rejected the Messiah. And so that branch was cut off. And it's, in its place was grafted a Gentile branch. And we became the people of God. And then later in Romans, it tells us how the people of God, the original people of God, will be regrafted and brought back into that kingdom. How all this happens, when it happens, we'll let other people or another time we can talk about that. But this message is not just a broad theological ideal. This is something that is very personal. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Earlier I talked about the Hittites and the Hivites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Perizzites. Ladies and gentlemen, unless you are a Jewish person, that's you. That's me. When the Jewish people were building a temple in Jerusalem, our ancestors were running through the forest naked, worshiping false gods. That's who we are. We were not 
a part of God's people. We were marked for destruction. Because of this great plan that I just mentioned out of Romans 11, because of that great sovereign plan, we who were not a people are now called God's people. Isn't that wonderful? We who are not a people are now God's people. Now it gets even better. What happened to those godless people in Deuteronomy? Anyone ever met a Girgashite? Nope. Hivite? They're gone. There is no mercy. There was mercy for a while, but there is no mercy. They got what they wanted, a godless eternity. They were wiped out. 400 years of mercy was over, no more mercy, and those people were wiped out. But what about us? Verse 10, again, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Number seven, as God's people, we are those who have received mercy. Those who have received mercy. The point of the parable of the servant who had been forgiven much. You remember that parable? Jesus told about the servant who owed a lot to the king. The king forgave him. He owed lifetimes of debt to the king. The king forgave him. And that servant turned around and found another servant who owed him less than a day's work of income. And he began to beat him and he took him to court to sue him over that money. How unjust, Jesus tells the story, how unjust. The reason Jesus told that parable is that he wanted his disciples to understand this fact, that the mercy of God towards us should define us. It should define who we are. It should define our attitude towards other people. It should define when we wake up in the morning, it should define us. I am what I am by the grace of God, by the mercy of Christ. I did not wake up this morning saying, I thank God that I'm not like all these other sinners. I wake up and I say, I thank you, God, because I was once not a people. I was a Hivite, a parasite, marked for destruction. And yet you have made me a person and you have called me to be your, one of your people, your children, and you have granted me mercy. And it should define me. Does this fact define you as someone who has received mercy? Well, let's pray that these things would define who we are. Father, we do ask that you would help us understand our identity as true believers, particularly that we are chosen people. Lord, you have granted us this privilege, again, not based on anything we've accomplished, anything we've done, but because of your great grace, because of your sovereign plan. And we just are constantly astounded and astonished that you would include us. We gave you no reason. And yet, because of your mercy, you included us. So may we go and speak of your excellencies that you have called us out of darkness into light. May we be people, people marked with your mercy, people who love and are kind and demonstrate a holiness that is not our own. 
May we live as chosen people of God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand for a benediction. Inspired by the passage I read, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. Now may we go with great joy, bearing the privilege we have to proclaim God's goodness to us. We are His chosen people, not because of anything we've done, but because of His great grace. Amen.